Hi again, everybody. It's Randy Nonnenberg here with the Bring a Trailer podcast. I have Howard Swig with me. Hi, Howard. Hello. We are coming to you today with uh, some excitement. We have an exciting guest today. Uh, we have Mr. Steve Dynan, who is with us, who uh, has an amazing history with, particularly with BMW cars, but with all sorts of cars and racing. Uh, and certainly Dynan was one of the uh, preeminent BMW tuners um, and still makes a, a wild array of interesting parts. And he's also up to some new enterprises uh, in the car and, and tuning and motorsports arena. And we'd love to hear about all of that. So, Mr. Dynan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Fantastic. Well, let's dive right in. Um, we list many uh, Dynan modified and Dynan equipped cars on BAT uh, these days, which you may have seen coming across, and many of them sell for a premium when they have those, you know, right combination of packages and components from, uh, from your uh, past and present. But I think a lot of people would, would uh, love to know, yeah, what's your involvement these days with the existing Dynan Enterprise and your new, uh, new and different things that you're working on today? Can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to? Yeah, uh, I have zero involvement in the current company. I sold it seven years ago uh, to a private equity group who sold it again, and now it's owned by Holly Corporation, and it got merged with uh, APR Audi. So the APR Audi folks are making most of the Dynam products. So um, I wish I was more involved, but I'm not. Uh, they don't seem to want my involvement <laughs> after they bought it. Uh, that's, their, that's their call. They own it now. Um, I started a new company uh, five years ago called Carbon basically just a made up name because I wanted to get back in the cartooning business. I had a five-year non-compete when I sold Dynan, which is now over. Uh, the new company is very similar to the old company from the standpoint that we have, you know, factory matching warranty, but we're not just doing BMW anymore. We're doing BMW, Mercedes, Porsche, and Audi. So I wanted to branch out a little bit into other brands and we're still involved in motorsports like we always have been right now. We're racing a uh, Audi R8 in the WeatherTech sports car series. Fantastic. Well, that's super interesting stuff. You know, seeing your uh, former components on different cars and belonging to different people. I've always found it fascinating tuners in particular as they uh, mature and sort of lead the market and then where they go. Obviously, you engineered a way to uh, exit from that company at a particular time. Um, and, you know, the AMGs of the world that got swallowed up by manufacturers and the Celines who kind of go build their own supercar. You know, I mean, there's so many different paths, and uh, but usually the owners of those and the sort of spiritual uh, link to you know where they came from and their roots needs to you know stay close to cars and stay in that sort of arena. So it seems like you found your own way to do that with um, Carbon. That's C A R B A H N. Is that correct? Yeah, it's basically car and autobahn put together. Uh, just to kind of give a feel for the new direction of the company. So Autobahn worthy German cars, basically. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the retiring type. Um, I, as I tell people, I'm probably going to work right until the day before I die, and I'm going to be happy to do that because, as they say, if you, if you do what you love to do, you're not really working. And uh, I've always done what I love to do. I mean, obviously, any job is work. There's always stress involved. There's always financial worries and those sort of things. But I'm a lucky person. I get to go to work every day and do what I love to do. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, some of those, uh, you know, earliest BMWs that you worked on, I, I grew up in the Bay Area and I love BMW. And so you and I had a little bit of overlap 
And um, seeing that you did that, you know, I very distinctly remember some of the first cars I saw with the Dynan, you know, badge on the back that was in the same font as the BMW numbers on the opposite side of the trunk lid. And that was always a really, a, quite a big deal um, to see those, um, you know, roaming around wherever they were and whoever was lucky enough to own them. Can you tell us a little bit about, did the car come from motorsports or sorry, did the company come out of motorsports or did motorsports come out of building those fast uh, cars? Can you tell us about sort of the early days and how it sprung about? It's always been pretty much equal both. Uh, racing and street cars. I started the business in 1979 and I won my first racing championship in 1980, the following year. Uh, the first year was honestly just car repair. I, I was a BMW mechanic and going to college at night to be a mechanical engineer. Uh, I dropped out of school, quit my job as a mechanic. I went home with $5,000 in my pocket and a drafting table in those days. You know, with those old 90 degree arms with the mechanical arms on it. And I went and drew a part and sold it on a little postage stamp ad in the back of Car and Drive Road and Track. And then I made two parts and then three and just bootstrapped it by, you know, coming up with great product that people liked and, and adding to it every month. Um, a gentleman came along, who was a NASCAR driver in 1980. And he saw the quality of my work and my creativity and wanted me to get involved in his racing program. So I, I did that and engineered his car for him. And it was just SCCA Club Racing, GT2. But we went out and won seven out of nine races, set two track records, won the championship in our first year, just in the, in the local reading here in the Bay Area. So at that point, I was hooked on motorsports as well as high-performance street cars and never looked back to either one. That's yeah. very, very cool. What uh, I was just, just real quick, I was going to ask him, what kind of car was that that was, was campaigned? Uh, it was a 2002, uh, like a 1970 round taillight 2002 that uh, had a racing suspension on and a side draft Weber motor that made 220 horsepower, naturally aspirated. It was, it was a neat car, um, handled really well. And like I say, we, we set a track record at both uh, Laguna Seca and Sears Point, which is now Sonoma, which is our two local tracks. Steve, when I think of uh, of Dynan and uh, and motorsports, the, the the car that pops into my mind is your uh, E34 540i Dynan Turbo. I guess that was maybe a World Challenge car. Um, can you tell us about kind of some of your favorite uh, race cars that you have built and supported over the years? Boy, um, I've collectively between club racing um, and professional racing and chassis engineer, driver, and um, team owner and engine builder have won collectively 12 racing championships. Um, probably my favorite uh, program is the one with Chip Ganassi Racing with the prototype cars where we won three championships and they were the team and I was the engine supplier. And then we also won the 24 of the Daytona twice. The last car I drove was the one you're referring to, Howard, which is the 540 uh, GT2 car uh, that I ran in World Challenge from 94, 95, and 96. Uh, we built that car, uh, built the engine, engineered the car, drove the car and set it up myself <laughs> back when the company was smaller and we had uh, very, very little money. I think our budget was like $10,000 a month. Um, but, but we believed in our capabilities and, and we did well. We got a lot of top fives. We didn't win the championship with that car, but it was a really neat car. It uh, made 750 horsepower, 900 pound feet of torque back when uh, cars weren't restricted like they are now. And it had an incredible amount of downforce. So, I mean, to give you an example, like Road, Road America, it would do 180 miles an hour three times a lap. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a fun ride. You know, when I think of kind of the most recognizable, you know, eponymous uh, uh, tuners, I think of 
you know, uh, Celine, uh, Callaway and, and yourself, uh, at, at Dynan, um, you know, we have a huge following for, for the later model BMW stuff and, uh, uh, a lot of enthusiasm behind, uh, the brand that you created. Um, I, I think our audience would love to know kind of, uh, what inspired you in the, in the 60s and 70s to get started? What, what other, uh, uh tuners and modifiers and, and anything else, uh, uh, did you admire and and kind of uh, build your work after uh, anything you'd want to share on that would be uh, would be awesome. Yeah, um, I was born in St. Louis. My father was an aerospace engineer for McDonnell Douglas, so I grew up with uh, the space race, Mercury, Gemini capsule, and then and then fighter planes. But I always liked cars more. I liked airplanes. My father wanted to be wanted me to be an aerospace engineer. He was disappointed I got into cars because he thought they were low tech. Um, and when I was uh, 13 years old in oh, middle 60s, I was born in 53, I went into a Ford dealership. My father, my brother, and I saw a 427 AC Cobra sitting in the showroom. Uh, it was like a white pearlescent color with a black interior and it had like a gold rope with wooden stanchions around it and said a sign that said, do not touch. And I didn't know anything about aftermarket tuners. And I asked my older brother, what was it? He go, that's a Shelby. And I decided at 13 years old, that's what I want to do for a living, not necessarily Fords or or Cobras, but I just wanted to have a, my own brand like that. That was a really neat car that everybody would want to own and everybody would covet to stand around and stare at. So that was kind of like the impetus that got me going. Never met Carol Shelby, but uh, really liked his work. Um, so um, I got drafted uh, during the Vietnam War, unfortunately, and uh, joined the Air Force, worked on airplanes for a while and came out and went to college on the GI Bill. Got a job as a BMW technician going to school at night. And I fell in love with the quality of German cars and the way they were put together. And in particular, the, the, the brand of BMW because of the way they wanted to make a sports car and a practical car at the same time. So when I started Dyna, my first tagline was uh, performance out sacrifice. What that was supposed to mean was you had a sports car that had a backseat and a trunk. That was the lack of sacrifice. The, the consumer decided that meant it was a high performance car that had no compromise in reliability or drivability. And it kind of turned into that as well. But the consumer made their own interpretation of what I meant by the tagline. And so it sort of morphed into meeting both of those. Interesting. What a what a journey. And I, I think that, yeah, I mean, many, many people uh, see those cars still today and, and wonder about that relationship. I mean, it was so BMW centric, but you've said you've wanted to branch off or now that you've branched off into other manufacturers, it's kind of less, you know, Dynan slash BMW. And now there's other things going on. Is that something... I mean, over the years, did you always want to do that and want to diversify and for what, whatever reason stayed alongside with the BMW components just because it was such a good platform, uh, like you say, with a back seat? Or was it a, um, was it, uh, yeah, some other, some other thing that you were just like 100% BMW for, for decades? Talk, walk us through that. Well, I was 100% BMW for decades because if you go back to late 70s, early 80s, uh, Mercedes were 240 and 300Ds and... Porsches were air-cooled, rear-engine cars, which I thought were diabolical handling. And not nothing against the brands. They just weren't like they are today. But And, and Audi was like 100 LSs and, and, and things like that. But over, over the years, over the last 30 years, uh, all the car brands have gotten closer together from a technology standpoint, a quality standpoint. I'm not saying there's not a difference between them, but they're all really great cars. They're all, they all make good performance cars now. They all make really good quality cars. And so I think the difference between the brands is a lot smaller. Um, I stuck with BMW so long because I had a relationship with BMW. It started in 1997 where they approved me to sell the car dealership. 
At that point, we'd reached uh, between two and 3,000 dining cars a year, which is why you see so many of them around. And that went all the way up through, well, it's still going on today, that relationship between dining and BMW is still going on today. And uh, when I sold the company in 2013, yeah, the, the company had gotten quite large and quite successful and as, as a recognized brand. And so I thought in order to be loyal to BMW that I would just not entertain other brands. But then when I sold the business, I got a job for Chip Ganassi Racing because Chip liked me. He brought me on board his place to launch the Ford GT program in Le Mans. Um, and it turned out that job got given to somebody else at the company. I wound up doing some corporate relations work for him and things like that. But I really didn't like the job very much. I miss being, being an entrepreneur. So I came back and I bought the engine shop back from my old company because uh, they didn't want to build racing engines. They didn't want to build race cars. They just wanted to make tuner parts because honestly, there's, there's no money in building race cars and, and racing engines. So they didn't really want that part of the business. I just sold it all to them together as a bundle. I bought that back and then I used that as to launch the new company. And I decided this time around, I was going to branch out a little bit because I really liked what Mercedes was doing with AMG. I really liked what Audi was doing with S and RSs. I really liked the new Porsches. So I went and bought one of each car and, and started a new company. So um, it's a very similar concept of, you know, very high quality, uh, factory matching warranty, uh, superb drivability and execution, but just more brands. Steve, Makes lots of sense. Super interesting. Go ahead, Howard. When you look back on your career, you've obviously done done so much and for both street uh, street and, and track stuff. Um, were there any projects, either um, racing programs or, or modifications to a street car uh, that you said no to, that you said, well, that, that is, uh, that'll, that'll tank this thing, we'll go broke, or I don't, I don't have the time and energy to devote to that. Um, can you share any, uh, anything uh, uh, over the years that maybe you walked away from that you say, thank God that was the right move, or maybe, well, uh, that would have been pretty neat to try out? There was a few things along the way. Uh, we were very close to closing a deal with, um, can't remember the company that owns Java um, to sponsor a McLaren F1 when I got done racing the 540 in uh, GT1 at IMSA. Unfortunately, last second, the sponsorship program fell apart. I'm still disappointed about that. And, and because we didn't get that sponsorship, that sort of ended my racing career as a driver. Uh, it was going to be me and Price Cobb. You guys remember Price Cobb from the old 962 Porsche days. Me and him have been friends for a long time. We're still friends. And we were going to be teammates in the car. So that was kind of a disappointment uh, to me. Um, also, you know, I, I think when I was with Chip, I think Chip and I both hoped that we would get the uh, GT program that Ray Hall has, that after winning three championships in prototype racing and two 24s overall at Daytona, that we would probably get granted that entire uh, contract from BMW, but they kept that program with Ray Hall, which forced Chip to move over to Ford, which wasn't necessarily bad. The Ford GT program was a great program. That sort of ended my, uh, my relationship with him from a motorsport standpoint. So those were disappointments, but you know, I've had a lot of, I don't know, uh, I mean, I've worked hard. I, I wouldn't say it's been mostly luck. I, I'm one of these people thinks luck is where opportunity meets preparation. So if you, if you are very prepared, when an opportunity comes along, you appear to be lucky. <laughs> um, so I've had a lot of luck from that standpoint, because I'm one of these people that works seven days a week, 10 hours a day, and I, and I like doing so. So I'm usually ahead of the curve. But, you know, there's always some disappointments along the way. Yeah, those are a couple of interesting ones for, for us at BAT. As it has grown, it's been interesting to see uh, the impact we've been able to have on the market. You obviously had a huge impact on the market. Do you remember uh, from the early days, the first times, uh, you know, maybe you saw that your dining name either on a race car or in the 
on the back of a car somewhere influential or some influential customer or something that you had uh, that was sort of a like, wow, we're kind of we're kind of making it to the mainstream and getting out there now. Do you remember any of those? Yeah, I mean, when I first uh, did Tuner Cars, of course, in the beginning, nobody knows who you are. Um, and you have to create a brand for yourself and, and without unlimited money, like I said, I started out of my garage at home, I had a hard time breaking through in the media. So my father had just retired from McDonnell Douglas and I convinced him to take my race trailer and put an M6 turbo in it that I just finished and drive it to Michigan. And I drove around to Auto Week and Carn Driver and knocked on the door and said, hey, would you drive my car? And this was Chubba Chet at Carn Driver and I can't remember who the editor of Auto Week was at the time. And I said, you drive my car. If you don't like it, I'll go away. You'll never hear from me again. If you do, I'll leave it with you. And they both drove the car and said it was amazing. And I left the car. And those were my first two big road tests. And the following month after the media came out, and it was print media back in those days at Auto Week and Car and Driver, my sales doubled the following month. And I said, okay, <laughs> we're going somewhere now. Uh, and that's what really made the business take off. And then, you know, that, at that point on, we probably had a major story in a, in a print media every year for the next 20 years. I think I had 13 covers and I think I had 80 road tests total collectively. Um, and and they, then they started chasing me down for cars. Uh, you know, once the reputation is there, it switches the other way. They're after you to bring them cars. But that was the start. That was the breakthrough move. I love that. I definitely remember those days when they were chasing you for cars and you would see all the, you know, S1, S2, S3 yeah. comparisons, whether, I, you know, I was into European car magazine when I was a kid. And then obviously all the bigger titles uh, that you're referencing now that we're actually closely aligned with now with Road and Track and Auto Week and these uh, car and driver titles. And they have archival um, stuff that I was digging around and looking at. Yeah, the different dining uh, features that have been done over the years. Uh, it must make you very proud to see, you know, your actual last name emblazoned on so many of these cars and the, the positive press and, and frankly, the, the enthusiasm that it built in the BMW community. I remember it being, you know, hand in hand. People were sure they were psyched about the M cars coming out, but they couldn't, uh, they couldn't wait to see what Dynan was going to do with the E36 M3 when it came out or something like that, right? Those were people were sort of yeah. on their seat at product releases to see what happened. And at some point over the year, we made somewhere around 35, 36,000 cars collectively. So a fair number of cars. I, I think there was years we out, outproduced Porsche. That's <laughs> what car volume Porsche is bigger now. So it was it, it, in the, in the, in the heyday, which was for us the 97 through uh, 2013, we were, we were putting on a lot of cars. We would uh, own 10 cars at a time for development. I had 72 employees at that point. I had three buildings totaling 50,000 square feet. And we had our own assembly line inside the building. Um, it, was, it was pretty neat. It really was. Yeah, I was there for a little bit of a part of that. And I know you managed your relationship with BMW and BMW NA and different elements of the company. And I was very green at BMW and was there. And I got to come to a meeting at your facility with a couple of BMW brass. Um, and after it, I was told that I was too excited about it, right? I was like, I was like, I'm blowing their ability to negotiate with Steve Dinah because I love his stuff too much. I was told to basically chill out. Um, and that I would, probably would not be invited to another meeting with the uh, BMW Dynan relationship. 
I had a lot of meetings like that with BMW. One person at BMW would be super excited about the brand we were doing. The next one thought we were the devil because the car was perfect and how could I dare tamper with it? So I, I got both reactions out of BMW, sometimes in the same meeting or the same day. Uh, because as car guys, the BMW people really are car guys. I mean, they look, BMW, one of the great things about BMW is, is they promote engineers up to management and they're product people and they like cars. Um, and, and so the, as, a, as a car person, you can't see a BMW that's tuned to run better and not like the car or you're not being genuine to your soul. Even if the corporate line is the car should be modified and it's perfect the way it came, you can't stop being excited about exciting car. So I would bring a car to BMW in the end when, when we got our relationship going, I started shipping cars to BMW. I'd ship them to BMW, let them drive them, and then I'm shipping to the media afterwards. I let the president drive the car around a few other people, the company. And when I did that, the entire mood inside of BMW changed because they liked the cars so much, uh, they couldn't help but fall in love with the brand. It makes sense. It's, it's, it's English though, right? I mean, it's a tricky, it's a tricky relationship. And I, I think... You know, the, the other tuners that Howard mentioned, they also walk that line. It's always, you know, they don't want, they don't necessarily want people to think that you can improve on their efforts that easily. But at the same time, you kind of can't deny that some of these uh, modified cars are really compelling uh, and wonderful. Well, I mean, one of the things we always like to do is we're trying to keep the character of the BMW, the refinement, the fit and the finish. A lot of the tuners, in our opinion, overtune the cars, make them too rough and, and noisy and kind of ruin what makes a BMW a BMW. Um, so we, we were very much of OEM style aftermarket tuner, I guess it'd be the right way to put it, more like an AMG or an Alpina than, than some of the people you know in the business. Not really trying to make the most power, but trying to make the most refined best car, something you could drive every day for 125,000 miles. I have to tell you a funny story. The first time I went to BMW, and it's before I had our relationship, and I was trying to get there and I had spent years just trying to get in the door. And they finally agreed to have a meeting with me and they sent the workshop manager over, which is, you know, ran their analysis for warranty uh, in New Jersey. And his name was Winfried Schimpf. I never remember. Um, clearly he'd raced cars. I could tell that. And he, he came over to the main office and picked me up and I had an M6 with me. Uh, and he gets in the car. He's very stiff. He's got a suit on and he gets in the car and he, he drops the clutch and does a burnout. And he's sideways through the parking lot. He goes up this ramp into the workshop and does a handbrake turn in the workshop, gets out and goes, yes, very good. Very stiff like this. And he puts the car in a rack and he looks at the car and, and, he, and he calls on the phone to his boss upstairs. His name is Hans Dunzel, who was in charge of uh, engineering at BMW at the time. And he says, so what do you think? He says, well, he's very nice work, a very good car, and, but he's an American. Worst of all, he's a Californian. And uh, I wasn't sure what that meant at the time. And he said it in German, not knowing that I knew what they were saying on, on the phone. So I just, I did, I pretended like I didn't know what they were saying. <laughs> um, but, but in the end, uh, Hans Dunzel was kind of negative toward my relationship with BMW. In the end, sort of became a friend and, and became a fan. Uh, it took a few years to get him there, but we got him there. That's, uh, that's really funny. Um, you, you had mentioned uh, some of the really impressive uh, figures as far as uh, a new car production uh, when you were really rocking and rolling. Um, I have to imagine at some point, um, I mean, there were so many uh, dine-in modified cars in circulation that perhaps, um, you know, parts availability and support for, um, you know, what are now used cars uh, maybe becomes a bigger uh, focus of yours um, than, than, than the new car side. So how did the business evolve specifically related to uh, uh, supporting all the customers with, with what sounds like tens of thousands of, um, of dine-in cars that are 
uh, getting miles poured on them and needing all sorts of different uh, uh, custom dining parts. Um, you know, we were very big in support for the older cars. So I kept all the fixtures and all the instructions for every car I'd ever made. And when I owned Dunn, you could call and, buy, and ask for a part for a 25-year-old car and we could make a replacement part and get it to you. Uh, in fact, for current cars, we had a 97.5% uh, fill rate within 36 hours on parts. Uh, and we could make anything within a month from scratch because we had all the fixtures. Because uh, we didn't want any old dining cars to, to, to be broken and not be repaired. It was kind of a pride issue. Uh, when I sold Dynan, I didn't think the new company is going to want to keep up that level of support for old cars. So I tried to get them to give me all the fixtures and instructions for all the old cars, which were handwritten in binders back in those days. And these fixtures were welded together out of hunks of steel and on a plate to, to build like downpipes for turbos and things like that. But they made it clear to me that they bought the company and this all belonged to them. They took it with them. Um, unfortunately, they have not kept up with support for older cars. What they did with the fixtures and the instructions, I have no idea, and I find that disappointing and, and, and because I love the old dining cars to stay in good shape. Uh, if somebody wants to send a car to me, I, can, I have fabricators that work for me that used to work at Dynan uh, when I sold the company, and they moved to Alabama and joined APR. A lot of my folks didn't want to go to Alabama, so I hired them all, so they all work at Carbon, so most of the people at Carbon are old Dynan employees, and they all remember what we used to do. Uh, and if you send me your car, you know, have pictures, I can hand make something for any car and restore it to what it was, but I would have to see the car to do it. Interesting. Sounds like an interesting dynamic there, frankly. Uh, and they are certainly, I believe, still selling components with your name on. How do the name rights work, if you don't mind sharing that with us? If people are, are do you have, you said you had a five-year non-compete for the business, which has now lapsed. But you're still, I don't think you're allowed to call something a dine-in component that you install. Is that right? Did they buy that as well? Yeah, they own the name. I sold the brand. So it's their brand now. So I, it is my last name, but I'm not allowed to use it in a company anymore, okay. which is kind of a weird thing. You can't use your own last name, but it just says what it is. Um, and, and look, they paid me good money for it. So it's theirs. Um, they're still in business making parts. They, they boiled the business down to the bolt-on parts, software intake and exhaust springs, and we always did that. And honestly, that's where the money is. And, that, and that's why they wanted it. But I also did racing and, and engines and motorsport engines and, and more exotic one-off cars for media and things like that, that I just did for fun. Um, I never really started the business to make money. I mean, I made some money, of course, but that really wasn't the motivation. The motivation was just to make a better car every day. And we thought if we did a good quality job and we provide a good customer service, that we would make a profit as a result of that, which turned out to be true. And I guess we could have probably cut it all the things that were a waste of money that were just fun things we wanted to do. And we probably could have made more money, but money really wasn't the reason we were there. Uh, of course, you have to make money to stay in business. We were there just to make really cool cars and money was almost a side effect of doing it. Makes sense. Now, once, you sell to a, once you sell to a private equity group, then the focus becomes money. Yep. You know, that's a, that's, a, that's a different goal. Um, and look, everybody in business wants to make money. That's, that's why you're in business. But we, we would certainly waste a significant amount of money every year on exotic things that sometimes didn't pan out, sometimes did. <laughs> you know, I, 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 my wife, we used to keep, a, I used to keep every experiment I ever made in a room um, that failed just as I remember to remember what I had done wrong. And my wife one day indicated to me how much money I'd waste on all the stuff that didn't work. I, she, she was my accountant, so she kept track of all the money I wasted. But, you know, 
She she supported me great over greatly over the years. Uh, she let me pursue my dreams. She still is today when I should be retired, letting me pursue my dreams in, in motorsports. And uh, and uh, she certainly didn't wow. have to be so cooperative, but she's been a great wife. Of she, we've been married for forty six years. So congratulations! That's good to have that support along the way in such an interesting and sometimes volatile business. Um, yeah. What do you think about? Um, you know, BMW and doing, you know, performance tuning today and the model lineup, obviously I think BMW today is a very different company and obviously a different, different uh, expression of the, the brand and, and what they've stood for over the years. Some people are very down on that and like, oh, new BMWs, you know, look this way and, and perform that way or, or you know, they're, they're kind of a volume manufacturer. Obviously when you were doing things with 2002s, it was the wildly other end of the spectrum, but even in the eighties, right. When they were putting out E30s and E34s and this sort of stuff, pretty different company. So what do you, uh, what are your thoughts on either working with them today or just, you know, Steve Dynan's thoughts on, uh, you know, the performance potential in the model lineup. I don't work directly with them anymore. Uh, I make products for their car still, but we don't have a relationship like it did with, with Dynan. Um, you know, BMW has kind of gone the way of all manufacturers and not necessarily their fault, honestly. It's uh, Mercedes is the same way in Audi. The regulations for crash requirements for airbags and backup cameras and infotainment systems that customers demand inside the car have made all the cars rolling uh, electro mechanical devices that are almost need an IT person to operate the car. There's so many networks inside the car and they've gotten heavy. All the cars have been. And the technology is, in order to stop people from crashing accidentally, with stability control and trash control and ABS and everything, has sort of made all the cars, not just BMWs, numb to the driver. And I was reminded of this recently. Uh, one of my race car sponsors as a young kid was racing an F2000, and he just turned 16. He'd been racing go-karts for a while, and the father wanted him to get a car, and he, he wanted me to recommend one, so I recommended an E46 M3. And they found a really nice used one at low mileage, like 40,000 miles on it. And I, and I put a, a neat suspension on it. We left the motor and everything stock. And I, and I hadn't driven one in a really long time. And I made a one-off suspension system just for this car. I probably spent about $10,000 on the suspension system on the car uh, using all my expertise. And I drove it home a couple of days. And I must say, I forgot how much fun old BMWs were to drive. The car is so raw and so connected to every one of your inputs. And while it doesn't have the power of the modern car or the sophistication of the modern car, is absolutely the funnest car I've driven in 10 years. Uh, I don't like the car so much stock, but once I got done with big wheels and tire suspension system, the car was so much fun. I, I tried to help my wife into going out and buying, letting me buy a low mileage used one and making it for myself as a commuter car. But I own way too many new cars and I was told that there was no more room left for any more cars in the household, so I didn't get one. But it was really a neat experience. It reminded me where BMW came from. Um, and, it's, and it's not just BMW, it's all the car manufacturers. They've, they've all had to go that way due to regulations and consumer demand. You know, so I, I would not really blame BMW for the direction they've gone. Uh, it's just society and where we are in, in the auto industry. And we're about ready to go through a big change in the next 10 years. Uh, most of the cars are going to get paid with electric cars. I mean, that's where we're headed. I know people don't want to hear that are into gasoline cars. But 10 years down the road, when solid state batteries come out and all the electric cars are making 1,000 horsepower and all-wheel drive, and most of the governments of the world don't want the pollution and the, and the environment from the petrol, uh, the world's going to change again. Whether that's better or worse, I don't know. It remains to be seen. I'm hoping I'm around to, to witness it and enjoy it. Well, that's so true. It's kind of the old saying, if, if, if you asked Henry Ford what the people wanted in 1900, he would have told you faster horses. Uh, yeah. 
So, you know, the, the world is, is certainly always evolving. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you're, you're obviously an engineer at heart. Um, I just did a quick search. We've listed, it uh, looks like 61 uh, dine and modified cars uh, on Bring a Trailer over the past several years. Um, each of those have really rich discussion threads um, around engineering and reliability and, and uh, all the improvements that, um, that your parks uh, provide to those cars. Um, but, but the other side of that is, is kind of the marketplace and, and what these cars are trading for. Um, is that component of interest to you? Do you follow kind of uh, trends with um, uh, your cars uh, trading hands on the secondhand market? Or uh, is that less, uh, uh, less of interest to you? I'm more interested in what I can make next and what their old ones are selling for. I am aware of the fact that the resale volume is quite good and actually going up. And, and honestly, even when the cars were almost new, the resale value was good. We would typically sell dining cars, even just two or three years old, just out of warranty for let's uh, 50% of the modification cost plus whatever the blue book was. So if the blue book of the car was 60,000, the customer spent 40,000 modifying the car, you would get 20,000 of that back on resale value. Um, on top of whatever the car went for. So the dining cars have always had good resale value. Now the older ones are becoming collector's items and a lot of them are selling for more than they've sold for new, which is really neat to see. Um, yeah, that, I'm, I'm proud of that. And most of the aftermarket brands don't have that kind of history, that kind of resale because the quality of the workmanship and, and the brand name just isn't there. Yeah, yours were certainly at the upper echelon. One of those, Howard, that kind of made a milestone moment was, I think, an E39 M5 that had full, you know, the full dine-in treatment um, and uh, was a really low mile and, and wonderful, sold for what was sort of unheard of for that model at the time, this being a year or two ago. And now I think people are a little bit more comfortable with that being a collectible model and and. Uh, drawing that sort of interest and uh, and a, a price tag as such, so I think those I think the diamond equipped cars will be uh, you know appreciating as time goes on as as really special examples because I think people like Howard and I and others in our BAT community sort of recognize the effort that you put in the the, the words you're talking about even just the taglines and the reliability and all those sorts of things I think people will remember that for a for a super long time. I think it's, uh, yeah, super interesting what you say about the future and where things are headed. Can you talk to us about any projects you're working on right now? I know you guys have the workshop in the Bay Area and a, a suite of, uh, you know, components and tuner parts that you're using on some particular models. Can you tell us about any anything that is upcoming that we could be looking forward to or seeing that you're involved with? Yeah, um, July 1st, we're launching uh, F90 M5 and M8 uh, intercooler, uh, heat exchanger, software suspension, uh, 900 horsepower, um, all-wheel drive, uh, phenomenal suspension. I have an M8 Comp as my daily driver now, and I've been driving around racking up miles on 40 cents a media, and just super fun car. Um, and with the all-wheel drive, and I'm finally glad that BMW and almost all the manufacturers have gone to all-wheel drive with the power that modern cars make. You need all-wheel drive just to hook the car up. You know, the, the traction is just not available to a dual drive car to have cars making eight, 900 horsepower, eight, 900 pound feet of torque. And even the OEM cars are making six and 700 horsepower now. So two wheel drive is just not adequate for that. So it's, it's about time the manufacturers got on board with that. I'm very excited about the new all wheel drive M3, M4. Um, and we're going to, we're starting on that car as soon as we're done with the M5, M8 project, which we've been working on for about a year and a half. Um, and we're also working on a couple of new Mercedes um, you know, I don't, I don't want to say what they are yet, but we're working on a couple of Mercedes and we also have a couple of uh, projects of Audis in the works right now too. And, not, and then of course the, the 
WeatherTech sports car um, R8, which we just launched our first race, started our first race in mid-Ohio two weeks ago. So, um, you know, that was, that was fun too. Fantastic. Are you out at the track doing that or are you guiding people from sort of the mothership or tell, tell us about the R8 that's going to be racing? Uh, I'm, the, I'm the car engineer. I'm the setup guy. So I'm the one that makes the car handle. We won the championships in, uh, in IMSA GT4 and GS in 19, and we almost won it back-to-back in 20. We finished second because we had a small mechanical problem at the last race, or we would have won two championships back-to-back, and now we've uh, elevated ourselves up to the WeatherTech Series. But all along, I've always been the car engineer. So you know, most tuners, in fact, all tuners I know, go hire a race car engineer to come set up their race car. I'm a good enough engineer that I set up my own race cars, and I beat all the people that hire engineers of their own. So... That's what I really like doing is, is, is setting up a car better than everybody else. That's, that's is my joy. Um, I've always made my own cars, my own engines and set up the car myself. But now with the modern car, the engines are sealed. You have to buy factory cars. They're all regulated under the BOP. So the only thing you can do anymore is car setup. But that's okay. Car setup is actually my best skill. Um, I also call the race. I do the strategy. I wear the headset. I call the pit stops. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very much involved. It, it doesn't run if I'm not there. Nice. And what's the, what's the livery on that car? What does it look like? How can people recognize it if they're out at the races? Uh, uh, it's black and gray. Um, it says carbon on the side of the door and uh, it's number 39. Okay. Fantastic. Excellent. Um, well, they're all in NBC sports these days too, by the way, NBC sports network, all the weather tech uh, races. Yeah, that's a good plug. Those are sports car races are fun to watch. They've always been fun to watch for, for me and the association they have. I know they're not road cars by any means, but uh, seeing an R8 race is is often more interesting for me than seeing uh, something that looks, you know, uh, a little bit more extreme or open wheel racing. It's fun to associate the brand and the, the components in it uh, and see how they relate to street cars. So I, I love that you're involved in that. It is pretty amazing that you're out there with the headset, the guy on the pit wall or in the in the uh, team quarters, you know, calling the shots. Um, yeah. Were super impressive and, and compelling. So I appreciate you plugging that and uh, and also telling us about Carbon. It's an interesting new chapter for you and always interesting for us to just sort of follow you and, and what you're up to. We really appreciate you making some time to, to chat with our uh, folks today. And if they're looking for you, I'm sure they can find you at Carbon.com. Is that right? And maybe where else? It's CarbonAutoWorks.com. Yeah. And uh, yeah, watch the race on M- NBC Sports Network. The WeatherTech races are phenomenally close. Uh, it gave you an idea at Mid-Ohio, there was 13 cars in the same ten- seven tenths of a second on uh, lap time wise, which is pr- pretty tough competition. I mean, there's literally hundreds of a second per grid position on the grid. So uh, you can be a second off and you're last, just to give you a perspective <laughs> on how tight the group is. So you better be on your game. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite a compact uh, run list there at the finish line. So anyhow, yeah, we will definitely be watching it. And we certainly appreciate your uh, time today and love seeing dining cars within the BAT community and them talking about it. So um, yeah. appreciate you here. And um, we will uh, maybe circle back. I'd love to check out some of those cars at your shop. It sounds like 900 horsepower in an M8. Sounds totally crazy to me, but if we could be part of it or or uh, see one of those come across the list at BAT. We'd love to see it. Yeah, you know, if you want to come by and take for a drive, I'm happy to, happy to set you up with that. We could put a, a, a V-Box camera in the car and uh, you can shoot some video too. Fantastic. Howard, there's your invite, buddy. Sounds like that's <laughs> There you go, Howard. 
no, that, that one's for you, Ready? No, no, Steve, thank you. You know, we have such a huge BMW following and, and you are such a legend to so many uh, people uh, in, in both the BAT community and, and elsewhere. So uh, I think people are, are going to be absolutely thrilled to, uh, uh, to hear, listen to this podcast and, and hear, from, hear from you directly. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys for making time for me. I appreciate it. Okay. You bet. I hope we can do it again. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, straight from the horse's mouth, Steve Dinan. He has been there and done that in the BMW tuning world and the horsepower uh, production world. And we, uh, we owe a lot of, to, uh, to him in terms of thanks for that. It's, it's, uh, it's been a fun ride and there's more to come. So we will see you on the next BAT podcast. See you then. Mm-hmm.